From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. You've found me. This is The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. It is so good to be here uh, with you. Uh, this is going to be a busy Exploring hour. Exploring theories. Uncovering facts. Oh, before I was so rudely interrupted. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a busy hour. We have company. Uh, Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications, uh, is in studio. We'll say hello momentarily to him. Standing by on the phone, uh, Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt. Roswell investigators extraordinaire, uh, all four of us, that's right, all four of us in this tiny little room, and we'll be discussing their uh, new book, that's um, uh, Schmidt and Carey's new book, The Children of Roswell, A Seven-Decade Legacy of Fear, Intimidation, and uh, Cover-Ups. Uh, before that, uh, we'll say hello to a couple of people absolutely crucial to the flawless execution of this program. <laughs> I wrote the script before that little uh, faux pas there earlier. Uh, anyway, uh, Ian Robertson, uh, the reincarnation of Eddie Cochran, is with us on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and the dials, and uh, he's my technical producer. Uh, then across the table, the mysterious, shy, reserved Albert Venzel is with us. Uh, still undecided. Albert could be a spy. I'm not really sure. He's so mysterious uh, he plays his cards very close to the vest, but I do know that he's a remote viewer. Did you know that about uh, Albert? He is a remote viewer, and I am uh, still waiting for him to give me some winning lottery numbers. Uh, Albert is also running our HOA. That's our Hangout on Air, and if you want to watch the live stream of the program, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, and click on the HOA link. Uh, which is in the uh, tweet, uh, the uh, tweet at or near the top of my Twitter feed. Uh, and uh, tweets and HOAs, what is he talking about? All right, uh, please visit the website, strangeplanet.ca. Go to the radio page. That's the conspiracy show. Uh, please register, become a, num- a member. It's fast and it's easy and it's free. Just got to get past that little captcha, uh, which is not a problem. And captures are getting very interesting. Now you get to like hit a home run or, I don't know, uh, uh, putt a, uh, a golf ball into a hole and then to prove you're not a human, they're getting more and more complex all the time. Anyway, uh, once you're a member, that gives you a, um, a special access to the members-only page, strangeplanet.ca. And while you're there, uh, please visit the live events page, play, uh, strangeplanet.ca, the live events page, my next live event. Sunday, April the 17th, that, that's at the University of Toronto, right downtown, St. George campus. Sunday, April 17th, The Bilderbergs, uh, featuring Daniel Estulin, Pulitzer Prize nominee. Did you know he was also nominated for a Nobel Prize? He was. Uh, and he's met Fidel Castro, presented him with a copy of his uh, book, The True Story of the Bilderbergs. Anyway, Daniel Estulin, Sunday, April 17th, U of T, and he'll be presenting the Canadian theatrical debut uh, of his uh, new documentary film, Bilderberg, the movie. Uh, and then after that, that's not enough. Okay, so you watch this incredible new film on the Bilderbergs. Then Daniel will present a 90-minute lecture revealing his uh, incredible research into the secretive, powerful cabal, the Bilderbergs. 
Uh, for more information and to order tickets online, go to strangeplanet.ca, click on the live events page, and you can also order through our good friends at Conspiracy Culture in store at 1344 Bloor Street West uh, by phone 416-916-1696, 416-916-1696, or online at conspiracyculture.com. The Bilderberg, Sunday, April 17th. Hope to see you there. All right. Since 19... And 47, when alien spacecraft crashed near Roswell, New Mexico, the historic incident has been well-documented, described, researched, and explained in countless books, articles, and films. Now, two of the most reputable Roswell experts, Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt, have at last exposed the turbulent and scandalous aftermath, the lifetime impact that Roswell has had on families who lived with the truth all the while enduring the government's erroneous accounts of the event. In their newest bestseller, The Children of Roswell, a seven-decade legacy of fear, intimidation, and cover-ups, the authors reveal evidence of years of suppression and fear of reprisal that these descendants of the Roswell witnesses have suffered from the U.S. government. Thomas Carey, Don Schmidt, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good evening, Richard. Glad to be with you. Excellent. Yes, hi, Richard. Good to be with you again. Great to have you both. And uh, Victor Vigiani, of course, from Zealand News Network. Let me see if there we are. Number two. Your microphone, number two, Victor. How are you? I'm just fine. Good to see you again and fine in fine form. Uh, this is hi, like, Victor. Hello, guys. How you doing? All right. That's fine. Great. So uh, two of you on the line. I've got uh, Albert in studio, Victor in studio. This is like in this tiny cramped space. I feel like uh, an episode of Operation Petticoat or something. It's crowded in here. <laughs> Radio at its best. It is, indeed. Nice and intimate, and great to have you with us. Very good. Uh, Sunday night especially. Uh, now, curious uh, the thing. I mean, you, you guys have dealt into so many different aspects of the Roswell UFO crash, but why, why now are you looking at the descendants, the children, as opposed to the adults? What's so special about the children? Well, I think primarily for the fact that even throughout the course of our investigation, we've always been interviewing the families. Uh, many times we've had the families take us aside. You know, I've been trying to get my husband to talk. We've been trying to get our father to talk for years without uh, any success. And as a result, we often stayed in contact with the families. And little by little, we started to learn about a lot of the fear a lot of the intimidation about the late night phone calls, about the um, you know strange occurrences that not only transpired in the aftermath of 1947, but in, in in many cases right up to their own deaths, right up even to today. And now, of course, you know we uh, we've lost. Uh, I don't. Th- are there any original witnesses left? I don't believe. And now, even the children, of course, are, are getting on. Are there any original? There aren't any original witnesses left, are there? The uh, the original witnesses uh, mostly. If, if you got to figure, uh, Richard, uh, if you're a 20 year old uh, Air Force person back in 1947, next year you'll be 90 years old. Right. Right. Exactly. And most of those, I would say, 99 percent of those are gone now. The, that were uh, at the Roswell base, uh, certainly those involved. There's 
I can only think of one, <laughs> off the top of my head, I can only think of one who might still be alive. As I, I called him a year ago, he was still alive. He was in his late uh, 80s. But when you're that old, I mean, you could be gone the next day, you know? So uh, along the way, we started relying upon the children, because oftentimes the children will speak if, if the parent has told the story to the child, where, the, where we would call up the participant when they were still alive. They would say, oh, I'm sworn to secrecy. I, I'm on a government pension. Uh, I don't want to mess up things. Uh, I, I like things the way they are. Goodbye. So uh, we uh, increasingly have relied on children, and now the children are starting to pass away, and increasingly the grandchildren, the second and third generations. So that's where we're at. Uh, and, I mean, uh, we know about the the threats that the adults received by the military and, and, uh, and the sheriff and... Uh, Secret Service reports that they were on the ground there very quickly as well. The, the adults were certainly threatened. But are you hearing from the children that that they were directly or indirectly threatened as well? Well, certainly the uh, the, the best example, is, which uh, we've cited for years, but which have we lost Don? Or? No, Don's here. We still have Don Thomas. Can you can you not hear Don? I don't hear him now. No. Uh, go, Don, try try speaking to make sure Thomas can hear you. Yes, Tom, are you there? Okay, Thomas Ground is... control to Major Tom. <laughs> All right, Thomas isn't hearing you. Thomas, are you hearing me? I, I am hearing you. I just heard Don uh, a second ago. All right, good, good. Okay, so uh, Don, you go ahead, and then Thomas, uh, you, you can follow up. So again, the one of you are going to give me a, an example of a child of Roswell who was threatened. Well, certainly the best example, which we've cited for years, would be uh, Frankie Rowe, who was the daughter of fireman uh, Dan Dwyer with the Roswell Fire Department back in 1947, who, after hearing about the crash north of town, personally went out in his own vehicle with another firefighter, arriving just Whoops, before... We're getting some real the... feedback here, Don. I don't know if you can hear it on your end. Uh, I'm hearing a slight echo. Okay. All right. You're on a, a landline? Uh, yes. Okay. Yep. All right. We'll try to fix that during the break, but we're, and we'll, we're heading into a break shortly. But I'm sorry for the interruption. Go ahead. But because of what her father, the fireman Dan Dwyer, had conveyed to her, her sister, their mother, and then what Frankie herself had observed when a state police officer by the name of, of Robert Scroggins had stopped by the firehouse, with a piece of the wreckage from the actual debris field, the crash. And she was able to handle it and see that it had characteristics that even by today's accounts was something very strange, very bizarre. It had perfect memory. It uh, would unfold and smooth out right before their eyes. And the military would actually come to her home later that day, uh, sequestering her mother Hello? and... Uh, Oh, we still have Don uh, Thomas. Sorry, we're we're talking with Don. You can't hear Don, but we'll try to fix this uh, during the Something's break. Something's going on over the phones. I keep losing you. All right, we will try and fix this during the break, uh, Thomas, yeah, if I you can, can hear, hear me. You. Okay. Don was just finishing up on on one of the uh, the children that were threatened. Right, and and in her case, uh, she would overhear her mother being threatened that they would kill the children. 
that they would uh, take the children out into the desert and nobody would ever see them again. And it still continues to smack in the face of those who still insist on believing that this was mundane, something conventional, something really as silly as a weather balloon device, as we are still led to believe by United States government officials. And yet the very notion that they would have threatened children over that really, you know, you know, silly explanation on their part, you know, just still boggles the mind. Yeah, I mean, an experimental weather balloon is one thing, and it's possible that that would be a classified uh, a program, you know, very protective of a high-altitude surveillance-type balloon. But to threaten children uh, over something like that, uh, that doesn't seem likely. Uh, okay, so we're having some phone problems. We'll try to uh, fix those, address those during the break. Thomas Carey, Don Schmidt, the children of Roswell, Victor Vigiani, Zeland Communications in studio. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. All right, uh, welcome back. The children of Roswell. I'm talking about the sons and daughters of Roswell witnesses and the years of abuse and surveillance by the U.S. US government they have endured over the last seven decades. And uh, co-authors Donald R. Schmidt and Thomas Carey uh, are with us. Now, we are having some phone problems, and what is happening is uh, that Don and Tom can both hear me, but they can't hear each other. So what we're going to do is, uh, Don, you're going to stay with us until the bottom of the hour. And uh, then I'm going to uh, let you go and bring Thomas on for the for the second half. Are you okay with that? I apologize. but No, I'm perfectly fine. Okay, because we want to include Thomas in this as well. And um, unfortunately, the phones just are not cooperating. But you can hear me now, and we've eliminated the uh, the feedback. Um, so um, let me turn things over to, uh, to Victor Vigiani from uh, Zeland Communications. And uh, uh, take it away, Victor. Yeah, I guess the the biggest thing, Don, that uh, you know, in, in looking at some of the chapters that uh, that I've looked at, uh, the, the incident with Dan Dan Dwyer and and Lee Reeves when they first went out there, when they made the first trip out there, and I'm trying to put this all together with respect to, you know, what the reaction of the um, the Roswell Army Air Force uh, was at the time, and they came in and they literally overwhelmed everybody because of what went on, and I can understand them doing that from the point of view of whatever landed might have been secret, I can handle that, but when these two guys apparently made the first trip out, um, they saw the crashed vehicle. Okay, the, or the, you, the, you used the term in the book. You and Tom used the word vessel. It was like a, an egg-shaped vessel. And then they saw these three bodies of some kind. And then right. they, someone looked off to the corner out of their eye and they said they saw one walking around, kind of in a daze. Uh, right. it, to me, I don't know how many weather balloons or, or whatever it might have been uh, would, would hold that that kind of uh, you know creatures in them. To you know, I just don't know. It, it really kind of confuses me. So that to me is a tip off that something really really bizarre happened. Well, you raise a, an excellent point, Victor, and it's a, and it's a point that the skeptics continue to harbor on that until we started the investigation in the late '80s that there was absolutely no mention of bodies, for example. No mention of any beings, any uh, survivors, 
anything biological connected to this. That's why they're able to hold on to this balloon explanation, because they claim that it was all concocted by the researchers, by the investigators. And yet, all these families that we speak with, there is this constant reference to the little people, the little men, mm-hmm. going all the way back to the time of the incident. And one of the chapters, for example, and I'll, I'll mention this to both you and Richard as an example of still another first-hand witness that we just talked to as of last week, so obviously not contained within the book, but I'll, I'll quickly demonstrate how it's connected to one of the body witnesses, and that was the late Sergeant Melvin Brown, who was with K-Squad, the Kitchen Squad, for example. And keeping in mind that this was the first atomic bomb base in the world at that time, each and every one, each and every personnel on that base had a top security clearance. And as a result, that if you worked in the mess hall, you also had a top security clearance. Well, Brown's story to his family, his wife Ada, his daughters Beverly and Harriet, right up until he died, was that he was posted behind an ambulance truck out at that site out of that very same site that Dan Dwyer and Lee Reeves drove out to days before. And he was posted and told, keep his eyes forward. First chance he got, what did he do? He reached in behind him, lifted up a tarp, and there were a couple of the bodies. So he actually saw what he had only heard as rumors, the little people, the little men. Well, advance 2016. Well, there was a pig farmer by the name of Ray Pollard, who would go into the base with a flatbed truck each and every morning with empty garbage pails and would exchange them for food scraps, for garbage, from the mess halls to take and feed to his pigs at his pig farm. And he would overhear a sergeant from K-Squad talking about the strange people involved in a crash north of town at the very same time that the newspaper was publishing the press release claiming the Army had captured a flying saucer. So was it the same sergeant? But nonetheless, it was somebody still connected to the very same unit, the very same squadron. Would you imagine... years later, and according to him, his family that we've talked to, they Mm -hmm. were talking about it immediately after the event, and they've been talking about it all these years, long before Friedman and Moore and Randall and Schmidt and Kerry, any of us have been working on this. They were talking about the strange men involved in a crash north of Roswell, dating right back to the incident. If they, if they can eliminate this body issue... If, when I say they, the people who want to debunk all of this, in addition to the government people that continue to harass these children, um, if they can eliminate the whole body issue, I guess Roswell goes up in smoke. But it, to, it, to my way of thinking, and even when you talk about the people that flew the bodies out of uh, Wright-Patterson, um, I think it was uh, one of the pilots described them putting the, the bodies into the crates. And, yes. yeah, and all of that, that's going to be... Ex- that was O.W. Pappy Henderson. Correct. Pappy Henderson, right, yeah. Uh, that that issue alone and the recurrence of the whole body issue sustains this this matter to a point where 
uh, and even the, the, the constant and even to this day the harassment of these children, there's no way that people can disprove that something very, very different and very strange happened uh, back in, in July of 1947. There's just no way they can eliminate this from being a matter of keen interest to the government. That's where... Well, it, again, let's also cite you know, two principal examples that uh, the, the very same debunkers, the same skeptics cannot deny if we talk about that infamous weather balloon press conference going up the chain of command over the 509th bomb group from Roswell to the 8th Air Force headquartered at Carsville Army Airfield in Fort Worth, Texas. And there the commanding officer of the 8th Air Force, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, brought the press in to photograph not the remains from Roswell, but a substituted weather balloon with a radar reflector kite. Mm-hmm. Even his very chief of staff, Colonel Thomas DeBose, then later a retired brigadier general, we have him signing a sworn affidavit. We have him giving a video deposition where he states the balloon was a hoax, that they were the ones who substituted the material, the balloon material, for the actual material. And General Ramey, in three of the photographs, is holding that telex that piece of paper, and in one of them you can make out a paragraph of text. And under extreme computer enhancement and and scanning as far as uh, analysis, you are able to read the line, the victims of the wreck. Well, there again, what victims connected to a weather balloon? Mm -hmm. right, Right there, they're confirming some form of bodies associated with the wreck. Uh, and with then the... we want to advance it up to 1997, when the Air Force had another press conference in Washington, and they put out their fourth explanation, the wooden crash dummy, the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummy explanation. Albeit five years removed, the project didn't even originate until five years after Roswell. Nonetheless, the Air Force felt compelled, they felt forced to come up with a rational explanation for all of the body reports, all of the body testimony. And to us, that was a major victory because the Air Force was demonstrating that they were acknowledging some semblance of bodies recovered. Don Schmidt is uh, with us, a co-author of The Children of Roswell. Uh, Thomas Carey will join us after the bottom of the hour. Now, sticking with the alien bodies, uh, uh, Don, uh, one of the daughters of one of the, the key witnesses to these bodies uh, told you about discovering that her telephone had been bugged. How long did that yeah. go on for? Tell me about this witness, and how long was this, well, uh, the, this surveillance? The witness we were talking about earlier, and that would be Frankie Rowe. When they had moved after she had married... And her and her husband, they moved up to Pertalis, which is about an hour northeast of Roswell. And it wasn't until around 1997, actually it was just before the 50th anniversary celebration, that uh, they had a, a bad storm and a power outage and a phone outage. Technician came and, you know, repaired the phone line and came to the door, and he handed her this electronic device. And she didn't recognize it. She had no idea. She thought it was just some scrap wiring that he had replaced. And he informs her, you know, Mrs. Rowe, you realize that somebody's been monitoring your phone use. Someone's been monitoring your phone calls. 
and she was shocked, uh, obviously. But then she and, and her husband became angry, and she immediately realized that it had something to do with Roswell. She realized that the only reason that anybody would be concerned about who and what she was you know, t- uh, talking about was the fact that just within the five years before, she had first gone public. It was the first time that we had actually been able to interview her and her, have her actually describe to us her father's account, the physical threats of the, the military threatening to kill them, should they, the parents ever talk about this, and then her own personal recollection of handling a piece of the wreckage and how it, was, it, it possessed this perfect memory. Well, that, that's so something... Why would somebody... Yeah again be so concerned yeah. the, there's there's a part there Don in in the in one of the, the the chapters that I was looking at where you talked about GIs um, would be uh, coming and going taking these parts from I think it was building 84 or hangar P3 whatever it was it was both right yeah um, are they one and the same thing yeah, they are well it was P3 and 47 and uh, in recent years I see. Okay. It's, uh, it's known as building 84 correct? yeah my, my question is uh, some of the GIs would uh, take uh, take great fun in, in taking some of these uh, these parts of the of, of the debris you know segments of the debris and and trying to take them to uh, you know mechanics of some kind to to uh, to drill through them or heat them or I mean welding the, shops yeah that's right attempt to cut with the settling torches of and course arcs. yeah I mean, advanced and, material uh, like that, my goodness. And so it, 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 there's a pattern of activity, of behavior, not only in the part of civilians involved, but also the military, as to the strain characteristics of this wreckage. And that's something that, whether it is the government here in the States or even authors and researchers who do attempt to come up with alternative explanations, they never address the wreckage. The bodies, they never addressed with the witnesses who handled it, who saw them firsthand, are describing. And they're not describing anything that I'm aware of, or I would uh, defy anyone to come up with a rational explanation as to what these people are describing, as to the true nature of the wreckage and the bodies recovered at Roswell. Uh, another witness to the uh, the bodies. Uh, the, the, uh, I never knew about... Um New Mexico Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya until I, I talked to you, yes. uh, Don. I hadn't heard that that tale. And uh, uh, d- does he have does he have children, living children, and, and does that enter into this uh, at yes, all? Have you does. talked to them? And uh, other relatives who we have spoken with, we had even spoken to his widow, his wife, very early on uh, into our investigation, and uh, we always ran up uh, against a brick wall. Uh, fortunately. Some of his uh, personal friends, uh, for example, both uh, Pete and Ruben Anaya, they were uh, members of the uh, Democratic Party at that time. They were schoolmates, and uh, they were the ones who essentially rescued him from out at the base. He uh, he was out at that same that, that very hangar, P3. He was originally there. It was the 4th of July weekend. He was there for the unveiling of a, of a new aircraft. And he calls up and get me basically the hell out of here. Get me out of here. Pick me up right now. I'll be at the water t- tower, which is just down from P3. And uh, they pick him up. He's uh, in the back seat. And, you know, he's just beside himself. And then finally he blurts out, they weren't human. They weren't human. 
And to us, we've spent much time trying to confirm exactly where the lieutenant governor was at that time. Uh, we can tell you exactly where the governor was, but we cannot find, given it's a 4th of July weekend, and there would have been all types of parades and ceremonies and rodeos and festivals, there is not a paper in the entire state of New Mexico that identifies where Joseph Montoya, the very lieutenant governor at that time, was. So we find that rather unusual as well. All right. Uh, Don, listen, we are going to say goodbye to you and then welcome uh, your co-author, Thomas Carey, back for the last half of the uh, of this particular segment. So I want to thank you uh, and uh, congratulate you on the children of Roswell. Well, thanks for your help as always, Richard and Victor. Thank you to both of you. Always great to be with you. I look forward to the next time. Likewise, my friend. All right. Thomas Carey, the co-author of The Children of Roswell, Victor Vigiani, Zeland Communications and Studio, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Do not go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right. Welcome back. Uh, we have said uh, goodbye to the children of Roswell co-author Don Schmidt um, due to some telephone complications. I won't bore you with the details, but we can't have uh, both guests on at the same time. So uh, we now welcome back uh, Thomas J. Carey, uh, the other author of The Children of Roswell. Victor Vigiani remains in studio from Zeland Communications. Thomas, uh, thank you for your patience and welcome back. Well, nice to be with you again, Richard and uh Victor. All right. Um, we, were, we were mentioning, you know, now we're losing the, the children uh, of Roswell, and of course, um, uh, one of those would be Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, you talk about in the book the um, how the U.S. Air Force tried to get him to change his story. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and then I'll turn things over to Victor. Yes, uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, we Don and I both knew very well. A finer person you can never hope to meet. He was just the Wonderful man. Uh, he was a ear, nose, and throat doctor. He had, uh, I believe, he flew helicopters. He uh, uh, was uh, called back to military. He was a he was a ten-year uh, service veteran, and he, at age. 69, I believe he was. He was called back to service for in Iraq, and he served two tours of duty, you know, from age 69 to early 70s in Iraq. And uh, just a finer man you never want to meet. And uh, so he, and he was 11 years old at the time of the Roswell incident, and his father... Before he uh, came back from the crash site with uh, with a car full of the wreckage, he stopped off at home to show his wife and his son, Jesse Jr. And uh, so Jesse, they spread out some of the, the material on the kitchen floor. And uh, this was really strange. And Jesse told us that his father, even at that time, believed that the wreckage was from what they used to call flying saucers. Now we call them... Uh, extraterrestrial spaceships, uh, UFOs. Anyway, uh, over the years, uh, they were they had been advised, and that's using a, a gentle term, that they were threatened not to talk about this ever again, and they didn't for 30 years 
until Jesse Sr. was uh, getting near the end of the trail, and he started talking about his experience back in 1947 over his ham radio network. He was a member of a ham radio group, and, uh, you know, they talk, talk, you know, over the, you know, breaker, breaker, this is KXOA, and things like that. So, anyway, so uh, Jesse... Junior. Now, Jesse Sr. died in 1986. Jesse Jr. picked up the baton, and uh, when uh, interviewers came calling, because the case was now out since 1980 with the, the first book, The Roswell Incident, researchers came calling, and Jesse Jr. picked up the baton and started talking about what he knew. So... Along about uh, 1993-94, the the uh, General Accounting Office, the investigative arm of of Congress in the United States, uh, were tasked by Congressman Stephen Schiff of New Mexico to to try to find out about what, you know what took place at Roswell. So the General Accounting Office the, they started to a search for documents you know, like uh, telexes and phone messages and things that might have been generated from the Roswell base at that time to uh, to shed some light on what was going on. And uh, the net result was that they they declared that the, all of those documents were missing, had been destroyed by unknown authority. Well, moving along, Jesse Jr., every time now he was he's becoming well-known, because he's speaking out about what he knew, and he, he's an honest guy. He said, that I, held a, I held a piece of, uh, uh, he called it an I-beam, uh, with strange symbols on it. And he said he remembers it distinctly to this day, things like that, and, it, and what his father had told him. And every time Jesse was scheduled to co go to an event, he would receive these uh, anonymous phone calls threatening him not not to continue with this that this speaking out every time he went to a to an event where he was a speaker which was often he received these phone calls and uh, the air force in 1994 uh, along with the the Stephen Schiff investigation the air force decided to quote unquote reopen and i use that term lightly the, their investigation of the Roswell case. And they cherry-picked witnesses, uh, only had a few of them, and they came up with this Project Mogul explanation, these uh, high-altitude balloon arrays that were designed to carry aloft up into the stratosphere, these uh, acoustic sensors to uh, hopefully listen in and, and, and stay up there with constant-level balloons. And uh, way high up in this uh, certain level of the stratosphere where sound waves apparently are are very well amplified and, and carry long distances in, in the uh, in the hope of uh, detecting the Soviet Union's first uh, detonation of an atomic device. Well, that's their that's their explanation today was this project mogul. Well, uh, they would the chief investigator was a fellow by the name of, uh, he was a captain, uh, uh, James McAndrew. 
and he called up uh, Jesse Jr., who had personally seen the wreckage. He knew it was the, the, these uh, strong, thin, metallic pieces, and some of it was memory metal. Some of them were were uh, these I-beams with strange symbols on them. Well, McAndrew, he was like he uh, was uh, cross-examining like a, a hostile witness. And he got Jesse, trying to get Jesse to accept the Air Force position that these I-beams were really masking tape, which were uh, used in the construction of these radar targets, these uh, rubber balloon-carried tinfoil radar targets. They used bailing twine and this uh, scotch tape with these uh, with flowers on them, little Tom, colored flowers. Excuse me, Thomas, i got to jump in here. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back and continue on with the Jesse Marcel uh, Jr. Uh, interrogation. Back with more of our conversation. Thomas Carey, co-author of The Children of Roswell. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Thomas Carey, co-author of The Children of Roswell. We are talking about the sons and daughters of Roswell Witnesses. And in the book, uh, Thomas and Donald Schmidt, who joined us earlier, uh, reveal the, the years of abuse and surveillance uh, that have been endured, again, for seven decades by uh, the uh, the family members, children of some of these principal witnesses to the Roswell UFO crash back in 1947. So uh, we'll get you to quickly uh, finish up on the, the Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, interrogation, really, uh, by the U.S. Air Force, and then I'll turn it over to Victor. Go ahead, Thomas. Yes, yeah, so it, it's like... Uh a, uh, a lawyer uh, cross-examining a hostile witness uh, it was more like haranguing. And here, you know, uh, you have Captain James Andrew haranguing retired Lieutenant Colonel Jesse Marcel Jr. So there, there's a, you know, a little irony there. But he said, uh, "What, what is it going to take for you to accept that what you handled was just?" scotch tape with funny flowers on it and uh, Jesse never wavered he never wavered he took all of the abuse that uh, McAndrew was handing out and his story never changed I, uh, I don't know if you ever re- interviewed Jesse Jr. Richard uh, yes I did you know Both the kind of person I'm talking about absolutely absolutely so, uh, unapproachable I mean yes. not unapproachable unreproachable yes and uh so he never wavered until the die uh, die he did. The day he died, right. uh, it was in 2013. I had uh, met with him. Uh, he was down in Roswell for the festival. As Don and I are always down there in July, and uh, uh, we sh- we shared a bale of hay, sitting on on a bale of hay in a parade uh, down Main Street. <laughs> and we we were both sitting there looking at one another. What are we doing here on this bale of hay? But uh, heck of a nice guy. I just can't see him telling something uh, an untruth. I just can't. 
but uh, they harassed him, uh, you cannot believe, because they they targeted Jesse Sr. first, and then when Jesse Sr. died, they targeted Jr. because they were unimpeachable. They were unimpeachable, but if you take them down, there's a good chance you take Roswell down and, uh, you know, the, the fallout from that. All right, so. Victor Vigiani, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I, I want to... Uh, address two things, Tom. Uh, first of all, uh, the skeptics always, uh, they hang their hat on the fact that, well, you know, there, there's no uh, solid proof. I'm not just talking about this incident, but generally speaking about the whole UFO ET issue, there's no solid proof. We don't have any, you know, vehicles, we don't have any, you know, parts, we don't have any ashtrays from the flying saucers. I'm being tongue-in-cheek, of course. No headlights. Yeah, yeah, exactly, wheel. right. In, in this case, um, it seems to have every single component. If you brought this case to a Court of law, it would have everything from bodies to debris to government harassment to FBI memos to all kinds of documents. It has everything to it, and I just exactly, it's got everything that any lawyer would want to have to pursue this case in a court of law. Um, So I guess that leads me to my next question: Is how much more do you guys need? to um, push this thing forward to get some sort of hearing or some sort of investigation through the government, not just have you know us talk about it on the radio, but it couldn't, can they ever resurrect this issue and bring it forward in a, in a quasi-court of law or uh, you know, a congressional hearing to say, let's get to the bottom of what happened at Roswell because we've got all the evidence. So let's, let's just stop uh, ragging the puck here. Well... Well, Don and I are not holding out for any government action. Uh, we just, uh, that's not on our radar scope. Uh, I just don't believe there ever will be any because the, the uh, civil rights violations that they committed starting in 1947, they, they do not want to account for. And they also don't want to account for a 70-year-old uh, lie. They've been telling a lie about this for 70 years now. And now to admit, all of a sudden, oh, yes, uh, yes, folks, uh, we've been lying to you, yes, for for 70 years. Then the question becomes, well, what else are you lying to us about? So uh, that, that we, we just don't see that ever happening. What what it will take, Victor, is the one of two things, either uh, one of three things, either a, a case that is just so compelling that, that hasn't happened yet, uh, uh, a landing on the White House lawn is the vernacular. Uh, something like that, that, that that's on television. Everybody sees it, and there's just no way around it. The the other is, uh, I mean, we have the witnesses. We have hundreds of witnesses, from doctors and lawyers to uh, uh, you know uh, laborers to to you name it. We 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 have that type of witness. Uh, or we come into an irrefutable piece of physical evidence. And uh, we thought we had that last year with this, uh, and I don't want to get into the Roswell slide story, it's a long story, but we thought we had irrefutable evidence there with these slides that were presented to us that were located and we had we did three years of due diligence on us with all of the with all of the uh, arrows pointing to yes 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 and in the end it turned out no perhaps it's it's still 
in my mind, uh, I'm still in a, a little bit of disbelief as to what happened. And uh, it's the door is not fully closed closed on that. Uh, and I, like I said, I, I don't want to get into it. It's a really long story. It took us three years to uh, present what we knew. No, let's let's but focus to, for to sure on question, that. It will either take a compelling event involving a UFO that, that there's just no way that you can, uh, no other way to explain it. Or we come into a piece, and we, we are still looking for a piece of the memory metal, the so-called me- metal that you can uh, wad up in your hand and then let it go, and it'll it'll just flow out like water and straighten out and is indestructible, something like that. And uh, you can you can tell that just by looking at it that we don't have anything like that still, uh, uh, as opposed to something to say like a. A, a stiff piece of metal, you know, you can explain away, you can explain away wreckage except some piece that is so exotic, and that's the memory metal, that uh, you, there can be no other explanation. So that, that's what I see, and I don't see the government, even though Hillary Clinton was, was uh, uh, heard to, uh, well, she stated, I guess about a week or two ago, that she believes that we may have already been visited. Well, I, I'm guessing that she read our book because we know that uh, Bill Clinton had a has a copy of our book, Witness to Roswell. Uh, it was presented to him. We know, we know he has it. I don't know if he read it, but I'm guessing that Hillary read it because she says uh, she wants to find out more about UFOs uh, and perhaps we've already been visited she wasn't sure. We've got about uh, two minutes here, and uh, Victor's got one more uh, question burning a hole in his pocket. So let's get that. Uh... <laughs> well, yeah, actually, um, the, the the hole has just been replaced by another burning one. Uh, the the idea of uh, the pledge that she made to John Podesta and the pledge that John Podesta made to Hillary, uh, they yeah. both are sort of in the same direction, saying to one another that I'm counting on you to get this information out. How serious, I don't know if you've heard that or not, but that was part of the pledge in the in the Conway Daily Sun. Uh, both of them were yeah. quoted as saying the, the, that. Yeah. The track record on that, uh, Victor, is not good. Um, uh, it goes all the way back to Lyndon Johnson, who talked about getting... Uh, the UFO information out when he was running for vice president in 1960. And you remember Jimmy Carter saying he was going to get the stuff out, uh, and it never happened. Uh, but it's John Podesta who's saying that right now. That's a different story. And now it's John Podesta and Hillary. But I'm just telling you that the track record on follow-through on those, on those uh, types of statements is not good. I've got one question. You know, a president has many problems to, to solve the, the economy, a war, and all of that, and uh, the, the subject of tab, uh, the subject of UFOs, as you know, uh, Victor, is still taboo in many many areas, and politics is one of those. Uh, professional people they don't want their name in the, on the same page as the the, the term UFO. Uh, 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 lawyers, doctors, politicians. Uh, People in the in the limelight who that de, 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 de depend on their credibility for their livelihood, UFOs is not one thing they want to be associated with. Thomas, I'm let me see if I can work in. Actually, I knew John Podesta was interested in this, but 
I'm surprised that Hillary said something. Thomas, let me see if I can work in one more. We've got about a minute here and not enough time, really, but let's just uh, touch upon it. And that is one of the... the there, there is a disappearance associated with, with uh, Roswell, a, a key witness in 1960. Uh, tell us about the disappearance of this witness and, and uh, what uh, her... Uh, I believe it was a, a she, what her, uh, her children are saying. Well, well you talk about Vernon Brazel... Oh, I was thinking about, was it there not, uh, uh, Glenn Dennis talked about meeting a, a woman, uh, a nurse on the... Oh, the um, nurse. Oh, that, that is a, such a long story, but that was a, that was a, uh, a phony story by, uh, uh, Glenn Dennis. It was actually another nurse. We know who the nurse is. She worked at the, uh, at a doctor's office. The doctor was called to the base. She went with him. But her husband worked in the same funeral home as Glenn Dennis in the same capacity as an embalmer. So we believe that uh, Glenn Dennis got the story from the nurse's husband, a fellow embalmer at Ballard's funeral home. He made it his own because he, uh, the, 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 you know, the uh, he, he used the nurse as his uh, uh, foil knowing that this certain nurse who's in the year the, the base yearbook was already dead so he used her he admitted to us that he gave us a phony name for the nurse so if you're in a court of law and you're caught lying you are impeached totally as a witness you are you are dead as a witness and he lied to us about the name of the nurse but we've been working on this for years and we believe we have solved who this nurse is and and how Glenn Dennis was able to come by this story, it, it came from the nurse's husband. Ah, okay. And, uh, the doctor uh, who was called, his son is still living, and he's a doctor also in Roswell. And uh, that uh, I've interviewed him myself, and uh, just, that's all. I'm, it's it's still an ongoing in. Uh, lead investigation on on that particular uh, doctor so all right fair enough we, thomas we have that solved all right i appreciate your time tonight uh in the meantime congratulations on the children of roswell a seven decade legacy of fear intimidation and cover-ups thank you for this victor vigiani my friend thank you until next time looking forward to it as always all right very quickly, Zeland Communications, how do we uh, access that? Just Google the word Zeland Communications and you'll come up with the blog and our website. All right, and my website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. As always, follow the truth. <laughs>